Sir Alfred the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is the managing editor of Fangraphs, making his regular appearance, his regular Monday appearance, Dave Cameron. And as he usually does during his regular appearances, uh, what Dave Cameron does in the following is to analyze all baseball. Uh, that said, if you could just imagine all baseball, that's how much Dave Cameron analyzes. And uh, really, that's all I'll say right now, except that as I note early on in this conversation that's to follow, uh, another episode that will be appearing on Fangraphs Audio this week, I think Tuesday, probably Tuesday, maybe Wednesday, but probably Tuesday, is a conversation with Nick Picoro. Uh, you might remember, uh, I should say Nick Picoro of the Arizona Republic, is the beat reporter uh, for the Arizona Diamondbacks for that paper. I uh, Not that long ago, I had a meal with Nick Picoro at the Press Box Cafeteria at Miller Park uh, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, home of the Brewers. This week, or I should say this weekend, I had lunch with Nick Pecoro at the Press Box Cafeteria at Wrigley, Wrigley Field, so we recorded that. That'll be this week. And then I think in August, we're not positive, but in August we might be having lunch together at Fenway Park. And so we'll have uh, at least three parks. We'll have the Press Box Cafeteria. We'll have a conversation Nick Pecoro, a great guy. Uh, but that's not this episode. This is uh, this is an episode of, of Fangraphs Audio featuring managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Hi. Hi. You ready to do some podcasting? I am. Are you ready for the thing that happens before we start the podcasting in earnest? The levels. Yeah, are you ready for that? Yeah, I did a radio interview with uh, some folks in Texas a couple weeks ago. Yeah. And they were like, hey, we're going to start checking the levels now. And they're like totally making fun of the start of the podcast. Oh, they did that? Uh, like on the air, yeah. When I came on, they were like, hey, don't talk yet. We have to check the levels. Um, <clears throat> well, uh, of course, I'm no stranger to ridicule. Uh, um, um, so that's not shocking. Wait, oh, wait a second. I do. I really am checking the levels now. Oh yeah, we have a serious problem with the gain. There we go. Now it's all good. The gain is uh, back to normal. I actually, I had to. My gain was uh, rather high, Cameron, because uh, the most recent recording that I did was with uh, Nick Picoro of the Arizona Republic. We did a second uh, conversation. We recorded a second conversation. Uh, our first one. Back in, it must have been in April, took place in the cafeteria of the Brewers press box. This conversation took place in the cafeteria of the Cubs press box. You, you are expanding your press box reach. Yeah, and in fact, uh, in fact, we've made a tentative date for the beginning of August to record uh, to record another episode of the podcast uh, in the press uh, the press box cafeteria of uh, at Fenway Park. Nice. Yeah. Good. Now the important question is. I remember in your first conversation with Nick, you were lamenting or discussing the ice cream machine. Was there an ice cream machine to be discussed in Chicago? Well, uh, in fact, allow me to correct you. We were not lamenting at all. I believe that it was celebratory. Okay. Uh, I could not remember if it was like – I know that some ice cream machines have been removed from press boxes, and some writers that I follow on Twitter have, have been melancholy about that fact. But I guess Milwaukee is not a place that has removed their ice cream machine yet. Oh, no, no. They have a, uh, they have a robust – um, they have a robust ice cream machine. Well, frozen yogurt machine, ice cream bar, all free, all free. Uh, and milkshake. Yeah, mil- I, I, I believe 
yeah, the uh, the BBWAA card has its perks. Yeah, it does. So, but uh, so the Cubs press box slash, and, and and of course the attendant cafeteria is a little bit different, uh, as yeah. you might imagine. It's a much older facility, and therefore modernization is slow to occur. And even even if it has been modernized, you know, it looks like maybe it was like 25 years ago. Um, but it is uh, being in a park that old. Obviously, has another carries with it another sort of pleasure. Um, and I was not I was not immune to that. Picoro maybe a little bit more so just because he's been there before. Right. But it's uh, still nice. Still nice. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that was good. So we're so this this is going to be an ongoing series of us having conversations in different press boxes. Nice. And this sounds like uh, the kind of thing that might win you. I don't know, the podcasting version of a Pulitzer. Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, which uh, doesn't exist, so nothing. <laughs> <laughs> there's no – yeah, it turns out there's no Pulitzer for uh, – although the, um, I assume that most awards organizations like that, like most – I guess any awards organization is kind of slow to adapt to new medium, new technology. Maybe we should do this. I mean, like the Emmys and the Pulitzers, these all get like, you know, the Nobel Peace Prize. These are like high media, uh, you know, awareness events. Maybe we should like come up with our own award for the podcast and give it out and like, you know, we can establish the Pulitzer for podcasts. So do you, how many podcasts are you going to listen to as we as we uh, make this no, decision? I, I, I didn't say we are going to actually do research. I, we'll just give it out. <laughs> just give out but the awards? I, we, we auction off the award. We take prizes. Yeah, just to, just have it be a dirty, dirty event. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, someone asked me in my chat last week how Fangraphs made money, and I told them the Rangers paid us a large sum to ruin Dustin Ackley. But this could be like a a secondary income stream besides ruining baseball players. We will also receive money in order to give out the Pulitzer Podcast Awards. Yeah, well, that sounds fair. Uh, you've also yeah. unwittingly uh, provided a segue to a topic of conversation for us, which is uh, shocking. <laughs> accidentally, which is yeah. which is Dustin Ackley. We don't need to dwell on this at length. Um, it, it's not so much Ackley that's the that's the concern here. It's 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 almost this. Uh, well, it's not the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. I guess it's the um, uh, it, I, there's another term for it that exists in in the sciences and maybe the social sciences too. But the uh, the principle where something being monitored or something being investigated um, is necessarily changed by the instruments which measure it, right? And uh, that's essentially the contention that uh, uh, manager of the, the Seattle Mariners, Eric Wedge, made um, when he when he suggested that at some level uh, Dustin Ackley's performance has been affected by the very people or by, uh, you know, in, a.k.a. sabermetricians or the tools, which is, you know, the statistics that sabermetricians use, he has been altered by those tools which are used to measure his performance. Uh, I, I think that pro- probably, I mean, my guess was as an outsider that Wedge is probably just frustrated and, um, you know, was looking for ways to deflect uh, blame away from his player some, at somehow. Maybe it's not the most reasonable way to do it. But um, I, I suppose it does bring up it does bring up a topic of conversation. I've, well, I guess first, would you may, maybe speak to the, this situation specifically, and I, I suppose um, you know kind of set the parameters for it. Yeah, I mean, I think you know this is mostly not a real critique. I mean, Eric Wedge was not, and I don't think he believes that uh, you know sabermetrics have actually ruined definitely. Uh, yeah, it was a, basically a conversation where the beat writers in Seattle were asking him 
why the decision to send Akron to the minors. He'd been asked about it before and said, you know, that wasn't something they were considering. And then a couple days later, they they went ahead and did it. So the beat writers were kind of asking him about his mindset and what he thought changed and kind of what they thought Ackley needed to work on. And uh, one question came up about his approach. And, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, we've noted here on Fangraphs, uh, you know, Matthew Cruz wrote a piece last year noting that Ackley takes a very large percentage of called strikes in the outer half that aren't technically strikes. So that lefty strike that the left-handed batters kind of get called against them, even though it's not quite on the plate, actually takes a huge percentage of those. Um, you know, they're technically balls, but major league umpires call them strikes. So Cruz suggested that actually needs to start swinging at these. So we've made basically made the exact same suggestion that, that Wedge was making in, in some degree that Ackley's passivity at the plate has been a problem for him. Uh, but I think, you know, in general, the question was just, you know, about active approach. And, um, you know, I, my guess is that Eric Wedge is not a huge fan of uh, some of the things that have been written about him on uh, a certain Mariner blog that is not a huge fan of his managerial tendencies and, and kind of the things that he puts value in. Uh, and so, you know, in a pre, pre-game chat that, uh, you know, wasn't necessarily being recorded for national television or anything like that, and he could just kind of speak off the cuff, Wedge decided just to take a, you know, maybe friendly, less so friendly, depending on your uh, perspective, jab at people he doesn't really like. And so, you know, I've heard the audio, like the actual audio, not just the transcript. And where Wedge says, you know, all the sabermetric stuff, it's very clear that stuff is a, a replacement for the word he actually wanted to use. You can you can kind of guess probably uh, what, yeah. what this, uh, you know, all the sabermetric long pause. Uh, <laughs> and then he goes with stuff in order to get like a slightly less offensive quote in there. But clearly he was taking a shot at us. And so it was, I don't even think it was necessarily related to Dust Mackley. It was just his way of, kind of expressing to the beat writers in the room that he doesn't really buy into the ideas. Right. And I, I suppose that I think you pointed this out uh, via Twitter. Uh, part of the irony, I think this is a real instance of irony, is that, as you noted with, with Matthew, Matthew Caruth's piece that he wrote, is that there's actually a suggestion. I, one thing that Ackley is, is suffering from or a problem he's had is, is dealing with, I guess, what's called the lefty strike, right, which is right. – um, it's it, it's an we know from studying the strike zone that outside pitches are called uh, pitches off maybe just a little bit outside the strike zone outside are called against lefties in a way that they aren't uh, versus righties or with righty with yeah. righty batters. Right, uh, the strike zone is different for batters depending on hand. That's just basically based on what the umpires have to stand. And uh, Ackley's had Ackley's had a hard time adjusting to that. I, I guess do we know if this is a thing that doesn't happen as much in the minor leagues? Yeah, I don't think we, I mean, we don't really have specific data for minor leagues, so it's, uh, not something we can study, but my guess is this is probably a pervasive thing. I mean, umpires basically stand in the same place, uh, whether it's, you know, high school, college, little league, whatever. Uh, the, the home plate umpire is positioned in the same way, and if this is a, uh, you know, basically an optical illusion where the umpire is being tricked into calling pitches off the plate to left-handed batters, uh, that, that optical illusion probably exists at all levels. Okay. And, uh, so do we know anything else about this? Obviously, in terms of um, players reacting to, if we take, if if we were hypothetically to take Wedge's comments at face value, uh, and say, you know, for whatever reason, Ackley had been doing a considerable amount of reading, uh, you know, about his approach, or you know, and said, well, uh, or or with regard to outcomes, most favorable outcomes, and said, well, uh, I should be patient, I should walk more often, and therefore I'm going to change my approach. Um, I guess I guess the question is: Do we know? Do we know of players, other players, to whom this has happened? 
We talked about Adam Dunn, how the the White Sox tried to change his approach, but that's not really something that started with him. Uh, Do we have a sense of any players who have uh, changed their approaches based off of the measurements of them or the reports of outcomes, like because of their walk rates were too low or because they want to increase their war or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we certainly have this with pitchers. I think Brandon McCarthy is the most famous where he talks about all the changes that he made after kind of looking at pitch effects data and a lot of the, you know, kind of newer stats. There are hitters who look at this stuff as well, but they're uh, not as outspoken probably, and McCarthy is kind of a, you know, an Internet darling, so he's the, one, the easy one to point to. But there are players who um, pay attention to kind of sabermetrics and, and these kinds of numbers. Um, but I think, you know, in going back to Wedge's specific comments, it's, I don't even think so much that he was saying that Ackley is aware of, you know, the idea of fan graphs or, you know, what comments have been made about him. I think he was kind of saying more along the lines of what, you know, Tom Verducci and some of the folks who have written about kind of the um, the passivity of modern-day hitters trying to work the count. And I think Wedge was basically echoing those criticisms of not just with Dustin Ackley knowing his stats and trying to draw walks, but uh, Wedge is not a fan of the kind of, current day school of thought of working pitchers and uh, trying to get, I mean, he has explicitly said, even in his follow-up, uh, he wants you to go up there and hit. And you know, he pointed, when pointed, or when asked to point out two hitters who he thinks have, uh, you know, good approaches at the plate, one of them he pointed to is Adrian Beltre, who, you know, I will, I love Adrian Beltre. I hope he gets in the Hall of Fame someday. I would not point to Adrian Beltre as a guy with a great approach at the plate, but I think that's an example of the kind of hitter that, Eric Wedge favors is a guy who goes up there and swings the bat a lot. And so I think this was more a criticism of the the mindset or the desire to work pitches and draw walks and trade some uh, lower batting average for a higher on-base percentage, where Wedge would rather have the higher average than the lower OBP. It's weird, though, with with approaches. I mean, obviously, uh, Adrian Beltre's approach works for Adrian Beltre, right? Right. But it, it, seems as though, uh, it seems as though a batter's approach is so clearly a product of something that's just innate to him, right? It's like the, the most successful batters, they seem to be, their their stats seem to be like a real distillation, a real expression of, you know, almost it's like you could, it, it you know, it, the, these, uh, like their walk rates, their strikeout rates, you know, their ground ball profiles, et cetera, they all seem to be like um, really pure expressions of, the batter, like the batter's, like his baseball hitting ability, right? And hitting is such a reactive um, event. You know, with a pitcher, a pitcher can can plan ahead, can say, "I'm going to work away and then go back inside," or "I'm going to work, you know, high and high and inside and throw low away." But a batter is really just reacting, and it seems like it. Um, it seems like you, you, it would be unlikely that you would have a batter who would dramatically change his approach. Um, you know, midway through his career or whatever. Yeah, I mean, to some extent I agree, to some extent I don't. I mean, I think you brought up Adam Dunn. There's an example of a guy who, you know, at 32, decided to drastically overhaul his approach at the plate and try something entirely different. It didn't work, and he went back to what he used to do and had success. But, uh, you know, there's a guy who, you know, used to take a ton of pitches and tried to go the other direction just uh, kind of to see if it worked, and it, it didn't. But I think, you know, the, the hitters do have a choice how often they're swing. I think there are a, a decent amount of hitters in baseball who are using suboptimal approaches. I mean, I think the Mariners probably have a point with Dustin Ackley where he probably has a suboptimal approach for his skill set. He should be swinging at pitches on the outer half more often than he does. Uh, maybe he should be swinging more often in general. 
Um, certainly hitters were swinging too often. And uh, Josh Hamilton, I think, is a great example of this, where uh, Josh Hamilton's approach is not a perfect alignment with his skills. But Josh Hamilton had a slightly better idea of the strike zone and the understanding of when he should swing and when he shouldn't swing. Josh Hamilton would be a better player. So I think the, the idea that every player approach perfectly aligns with his skills, I, that is not something I would agree with. Well, no, no, but, but I, well, I guess what I say is that we think of – the, 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 maybe the approach is not necessarily something that can be changed as easily as just snapping your fingers, right? You're saying, you know, the, although, yes, on the one hand, you, you do have the skills. On the other hand, you do have the approach, and they don't always match up perfectly. But saying that a guy could change his approach to better support his skills, uh, this is, might be a more complicated process. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly some muscle memory uh, issues there and kind of the the cognitive issue of, of swing and not swing decision. But I do think, you know, there is evidence that hitters can change. And you know, even the piece I wrote on Thursday that kind of shows uh, the change in swing rates by count and uh, looking at, you know, the fact that hitters are swinging uh, at the first pitch far less often than they used to. They're swinging at 3-0 pitches far less often than they used to. Uh, I, I think that there has been some effect of um, the mindset of, of money ball or whatever you want to call it, the rise of sabermetrics has influenced hitter tendencies in Major League Baseball to some degree. Uh, the question, I think, that has been raised by you know, Wedge and Verducci and some others is whether this is a good trade-off or not. A lot of the people who were raised in baseball 20, 30, 40 years ago don't like the style of play. But I think the evidence isn't really there that it makes, it, it makes them any worse. Okay. All right. There we go. Uh, good. good uh, we're, we're done with that, Cameron. That's that part of uh-huh. the conversation's over. Uh, let's uh, – okay, yeah. You wrote, uh, you wrote. Oh yeah, you wrote last week uh, with regard to the uh, some really um, strange things. I mean, strange in, in, in how exceptional they are uh, that a couple of rotations are doing right now. Uh, St. Louis yeah. Cardinals on the one hand, and uh, and I would say even pr- more impressively is uh, is currently what what the Tigers are doing. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, you, you know, we mentioned we mentioned so the Tigers are having they have a crazy starting rotation right now. Uh, Rick Porcello, who is probably still their fifth starter, um, posted the third best uh, park adjusted xFIP in all of among all starters in May. Um, had a sim, uh, had a, a quality start, and I, I don't just mean like quality start to stat. Had like a very good start yesterday. I think it was like seven strikeouts, a walk, allowed just one run. I think it was on a Chris Davis home run. Uh, Rick Porcello. I mean, question mark, is Rick Porcello their worst pitcher right now? Is he their best pitcher right now? Who's the worst pitcher? <laughs> What's the di- you know, they're all aces, essentially, at this point. Well, I, I wouldn't go so far as to call Rick Porcello an ace, but I, mean, I think Rick Porcello is probably a very good number four and maybe even a number three on a on a decent major league team. And, you know, he's definitely the Tigers number five when you look at the four guys ahead of him. Porcello is not that good. Uh, but, you know, they know they get ground balls and strikeouts and throw strikes. I mean, Rick Porcello, I think, uh, I think if you were going to make a comparison to him, another guy that I've kind of liked for a while, uh, who's a, kind of a similar type of pitcher is Mike Leak with the Cincinnati Reds. I think they have similar profiles. Uh, they were both, you know, highly touted draft races who maybe have underperformed at this point in their career. Mike Leak is a, you know, having a very good year for the Cincinnati Reds. I think he's probably their number three or number four at this point, even though he started the year, uh, at the back end of the rotation. And there was some thought that he might even go to the minors if they wanted to keep Tony Singrani. Uh, but Leak has an ERA of like 2.75 or something because, uh, you know, he's pitching in the NL and he doesn't have a Tigers defense behind him. But I think that's kind of the same idea. Like, whatever you think of Mike Leak, you should also think of Rick Porcello. Both of these teams, very good teams, uh, have, you know, terrific number five starters that could be 
number three or number four starters on most other teams in baseball. You know, here, here's the thing, though. Because pitchers, we know, when they adjust, uh, you know, we look at their aging curves for, for pitchers. For, for batters, it's generally really gradual for certain things, right? Like uh, plate discipline uh, will generally increase, or you know, at least walk rate does, certainly, uh, will generally increase over the course of a player's career. We know that uh, defensive skills generally decrease at a relatively steady rate. Um, pitchers, they kind of get good and bad very quickly. Uh, usually when they're yeah. getting bad, it's because of an injury. And usually when they're getting good, it's because either they've figured something out mechanically or they've added a pitch or something like that. Yeah. Now, you say Rick Porcello is is a is a four-starter or maybe a really good three-starter. At the same time, he's also been uh, one of the best pitchers in the major leagues for a month now. How long does it take to... To, to point to a pitcher and say, no, he's a different person now than he was. He's a different person now than he was X, you know, days or months or years ago. Now he is this kind of pitcher as opposed to what we thought he was. Uh, yeah, I mean, this question gets back to a discussion we had, you know, whatever, a couple months ago after, and you talked to, you know, Russell Carlson about this and kind of the idea of stabilization rates. In general, I think it's, uh, you know, nothing against Russell. I think the idea of stabilization points is maybe more harmful than useful. I think um, the question of at what point do we believe, or like how long does it take, how, what sample size do we need before we throw away old data? You should never throw away old data. You should uh, maybe lessen the weight that you put on it. You should discount it to some degree. We shouldn't ever just get rid of what we saw a year ago or even a couple months ago in Rick Forsello's case. In April, he struck out, what, four batters and three starts. Uh, that was, you know, <laughs> two months ago, he, he wasn't striking anybody out in the major leagues. The fact that he's striking everybody out now suggests that perhaps he's doing something differently and perhaps this will last, but also perhaps that it's not so sustainable that we should forget what he did in April. So uh, I don't think that there's a point at which we want to say Rick Forsello is wholly different than he used to be. Let's ignore the fact that Rick Forsello for four years couldn't strike anybody out. I think we can say, you know, Rick Purcell is striking out more guys than he ever has. As Jeff Sullivan noted last week, he's striking more curveballs. He's changing his pitch mix. Um, but it's really unusual for a guy to, you know, do a wholesale overhaul and go from kind of a pitch-to-contact guy into a strikeout machine. And Cliff Lee did it. Uh, but there's not very many examples. I mean, you know, there are, are examples of guys who had really nice runs for a while. And I think, you know, I was looking at it the other day. Jason Hamel was kind of this guy last year, right? Like, he got traded from Colorado to Baltimore. He added a two-seamer, started mixing his pitches a little bit differently. His strikeout rate took off. Uh, and, you know, he went from the National League to the American League. His strikeout rate and ground ball rate went way up. It looked like Jason Hamel was a new pitcher. Uh, this year, Jason Hamel was terrible. So, you know, I think we have to be careful with just understanding that pitchers are streaky and some of the changes they make, maybe they aren't able to sustain long-term. So, as much as I like Rick Porcello, uh, you know, I think some – uh, hesitation in, in deciding that his previous track record is, is useless is warranted. Well, okay, so, and another picture in that same vein, I'll get to the Tigers, but you know, uh, as, as my editor at Fangraphs, you know that I've had a particular fascination with a certain Cleveland right-hander, uh, Corey Kluber. Yeah. I think if you go to Corey Kluber's player page uh, at the site right now, uh, literally, uh, well, actually, no, it looks like Mike Pod- Podhorzer got in there somewhere, but... Uh, uh, basically, most of the pieces uh, written about Corey Kluber, and there are a number of them uh, at Fangraphs currently, uh, have been penned by myself. And right. You're it, the, the only person on Earth who cares about Corey Kluber. Well, no, that's not. Uh, the Earth is big. Earth is big. Um, and, in any case, here's, here's another question, and I, maybe it's just the same answer as you gave for Rick 
Rick Porcello. But uh, at what point do, do we start taking someone like Corey Kluber? What time? At what point do we start regarding uh, him as someone someone who's um, you know uh, posting excellent rates, strikeout walk rate, uh, certainly serviceable ground ball rates above forty percent. Uh, he's show he, he's got some velocity. Uh, he appears to have like legitimate secondary stuff. At what point do we start saying Corey Kluber, who is 27, had 60 innings pitched before entering the season, is like a is a bona fide major league starter? Is it is it is it the same answer? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe we should develop like a, a line, like maybe we can call it like the Mike Fires line or something, right? Because like for 100 innings last year, Mike Fires was amazing, throwing 89 mile an hour fastballs, and no one really knew how this guy was running like a five to one strikeout to walk ratio. His minor league track record didn't support it. Uh, his stuff didn't support it. It was just out of the blue. Mike Fires comes up and destroys major league hitters for half a season, and since then he's been absolutely terrible, just completely awful. His strikeouts have gone away, and the home runs have gone through the roof. Uh, you know, that 100-inning stretch of dominance has not proven to be predictive yet, at least. Uh, so maybe we need to come up with, like, the Mike Fires line or something and say, you know, until you get past this point, we, we remain skeptical. Okay. Now, now, to be fair, in a case of, like, Porcello and Kluber versus Fires, both those guys can throw hard. And that's yeah. not, and, and so Fires was always a question mark so far as that was concerned. I don't know, I don't actually know the deal with Kluber. I really had, I had maybe seen his name before this season, but right. a guy who has both his slider and curveball and also throws 93 miles per hour, I don't understand how that slips through the cracks unless the command is just totally a mess. Um, I guess yeah. it, I guess it can. Right. I mean, I think the thing, uh, I think the overriding point here is that stuff that should be more important than small sample size results. So when we see a Kluber or a Priscilla or, uh, you know, I'd even throw Mike Leak in there, even though he doesn't throw really hard, he has pretty good secondary stuff. I think when one of these guys who was a, you know, Percello and Leak were first round picks, you know, top prospects types, uh, with good stuff and they're pitching well, you can put some, you know, more stock in it than you would, uh, you know, some unknown guy throwing 89. Right. Okay. All right. And then, uh, now here's the question. So, Joe, Justin Verlander has based, he's been Justin Verlander more or less since he was called up to the major leagues. But, uh, maybe I'm saying this. But basically, everyone else on this Tiger staff, uh, Anibal Sanchez, has, is 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 an ace now. I mean, he's he's been the best pitcher in, in the league. Um, I don't know necessarily what's happening because he appears to be throwing roughly the same pitches. It's not entirely clear. Uh, Doug Fister, I, I guess he he had a, a little bit of a breakout when he was with the Mariners, but that's definitely um, uh, that he's definitely established that level as his major league performance at this point. Max Scherzer um, was streaky uh, at points, but has become a legitimately you know, above-average to, to elite pitcher. And now Porcello is showing dramatic improvements. Is any of this – should we be celebrating uh, pitching coach Jeff Jones? Is, is, uh, I mean, to what degree do we know we could, we could uh, um, uh, credit him with, with these changes? Or is this just Dave Dombrowski getting together a collection of – uh, talented pitchers with some upside that he sees, and uh, basically everything that could go right is going right. Yeah, I think you're actually undersold the beginning of Verlander's career, too, I mean, and as far as this thing into this pattern, is Verlander's first couple of years in the majors weren't that great. I mean, he, you know, he was basically a uh, a guy whose ERA was outperforming his peripherals, his strikeout rates didn't match his stuff. He threw hard, but he didn't really dominate hitters 
in terms of strikeouts the way you'd expect. And then I think it was in year three or year four he turned into Justin Merlander. Uh, so it didn't. He didn't get to Detroit as the pitcher we have now. He really matured into an ace under the tutelage of Detroit coaching staff. And then, as you noted, Sanchez and Fester and Scherzer uh, have all taken steps forward. And now it looks like Porcello might be. And Drew Smiley, I think, has probably outperformed what you'd have expected based on his minor league track record. Even he's only 100 innings and a lot of it's out of the bullpen. But uh, Smiley has been pretty good since getting to Detroit. Uh, I do think it's interesting that uh, it seems like Tigers pitchers strike out more guys in Detroit than they do anywhere else. And, you know, Sanchez is not taking a huge step forward. Fister was a pitch-to-contact guy in the minors. Uh, now he's striking out eight guys for nine innings in Detroit. Uh, it does seem like perhaps there's something to uh, the Detroit either pitching staff or pitching coaching staff, uh, Jeff Jones, Jim Leland, maybe Alex Avila. Like, there's something going on there, most likely, that is uh, emphasizing strikeouts as a uh, a point of contention. I mean, I think in St. Louis we know that uh, Dave Duncan for a long time preached the two-team fastball and ground balls, and every pitcher went to St. Louis instantly became a ground ball pitcher. It seems like, uh, you know, maybe there's a, a different thing here in Detroit where everyone who comes to Detroit becomes a strikeout pitcher. And, you know, if you're going to choose between ground balls and strikeouts, maybe strikeouts is the way to go. Yeah, well, certainly uh, it's it's hard to get a hit if you've struck out. That's Those are the facts. Um, whereas you can't well, but it's, 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 it's less hard to get a hit if you put the ball in play and the Tigers' defense is behind you. Um, right. Yes, it is. Uh, well, it's pretty easy once you put the ball in play. I was watching. Um, it, it is interesting. Is I think Fielder, both Fielder and Miguel Cabrera in the corners, if the ball yeah. is hit to them, I think they have they're decent uh, yeah. in terms. Like I think they both have decent hands. Maybe, maybe yeah. Fielder, maybe not so much. But Cabrera actually think has decent hands. Um, it's just they're giant people. Yeah, I think Cabrera had one of the lowest air rates of any infielder in baseball last year. He made almost every play that he was physically capable of getting to. The problem is that he just can't. He can't move. Right. Okay. Um, oh, yeah, so we're talking here to some degree. We're talking about how do we know when to make certain declarative statements about about a player. Uh, you know, uh, we're talking about this with regard to Rick Porcello, Corey Kluber, uh, you know, maybe uh, Jeff Jones as a pitching coach. When, when do we know if he's a very good you wrote a piece last week as well, and this will be the last thing we cover here. Uh, and and um, you wrote a piece about the Pirates, right? And, uh, of course, a question that you might have after the beginning of the season, you see a team's playing well, you say, well, uh, you know, they've only played three games and they're 3-0, so they're probably not going to win uh, 100% of their games. And then you say, well, down the road, now they're 15-3. Are they going to you know, win at this pace? Um, you have said, you stated um, last week that uh, – we should probably be taking the Pirates seriously. Uh, the, the Pirates have played quite well thus far. Uh, currently, uh, as we stand today, uh, they are in the – well, they're third in the, in the NL Central, but it's only because the NL Central is really good. They're two and a half games uh, behind the Cardinals, who, as uh, we just noted, are on a historic pace uh, in terms of uh, pitching. And if you're doing that, then chances are you're going to have a decent team all around. Uh, why Dave Cameron – why choose now? Why choose the end of May to declare that uh, this is when to take the Pirates seriously? Yeah, I, mean, I think maybe the genesis of that post came from a question in my chat last Wednesday. Someone asked me how many wins are the Pirates men with. And, you know, in, in chats, you just kind of, you know, get whatever answer comes to your mind. You don't spend a lot of time researching. That's kind of an off-the-cuff remark. And I think I put 87 up there uh, and noted that I didn't think they'd make the playoffs. And then after the chat was over, I was like, you know, I just basically made that number up. I wonder where they would actually be forecast to win, and because our new 
and the Danby standings page has uh, rest of season forecasts for each team and, and full season win totals. Uh, I noted that the, the Pirates were actually uh, expected to finish better by our fairly conservative regret model uh, than even I had suggested. I think you can probably make an argument that the uh, regressions that built into the steamer and Zips hybrid projection total uh, might be too extreme and, and maybe undervalue or undersell the number of wins the team top are going to get, especially if they go improve their rosters at the trade deadline. Uh, so the fact that the Pirates were projected for, I think, 89, 90 wins uh, based on that metric made me wonder if perhaps I wasn't uh, a little mistaken in how good the Pirates were and started to dig into the numbers a little more and noticed that, you know, based on uh, Woba uh, allowed, they've been the best pitching staff in baseball this year, better than the Tigers, better than the Cardinals. Uh, some of that is their defense instead of their pitching. But in terms of keeping runners off base and, and not giving up extra base hits, uh, the, the Pirates have been phenomenal. And their offense isn't good. Uh, it's certainly not great. It's, it's uh, mediocre at best. But Andrew McCutcheon and Starling Marte give them a couple of pieces who are decent offensively, or in McCutcheon's case, much better than defense. And, uh, you know, Neil Walker and Garrett Jones are okay role players. If they could get, you know, one more real major league hitter and then, you know, maybe a better back-end starter to kind of fill the innings, uh, you know, I think this could be a pretty interesting team. Their bullpen's fantastic. The front of their rotation's pretty good. Um, you know, I think in looking at the Pirates overall, I, I figured that I had just underestimated uh, their overall ability and, and thought it was worth pointing out that maybe I wasn't the only one doing that. Do you think that, uh, well, first of all, do you have anything for Pirates fans who say, well, yeah, they've been, you know, they've uh, they've looked quite good the last two years up till, it's been roughly the same date, hasn't it, when they've collapsed each of the last two seasons? Uh, no, I think last year they collapsed in August. Okay. The year before that, I think kind of in July. I mean, it, it was actually a little later in the year uh, for their second half swoon, because we haven't gotten the second half yet, so if they start regressing now, this will almost be a first half swoon. So what, do you have anything to say to those those Pirates fans, though, what may be different precisely? Yeah, well, I think the main thing to say is that the players are different. I mean, you know, I think the, the reality is that, you know, it's not laundry that has been regressing to the mean. It's not putting on a uniform with the Pirates that just causes you to wilt under the summer heat. Uh, you know, if you look at the rosters the last couple of years, those teams just weren't as good as the Pirates team. I mean, I think you look at Andrew McCutcheon in the prime two years ago, Andrew McCutcheon wasn't this good. Uh, you look at Francisco Liriano, he wasn't on the team. Russell Martin wasn't on this team. A.J. Burnett wasn't having a career revitalization. Uh, Jason Grilly hadn't yet become a dominant closer. They didn't have Mark Melanson. Like, uh, you know, there are just better players in place for the Pirates now than there were last year or the year before. And I think to look at it, what a franchise itself has done or a city has done, I always laugh when, you know, like the, the television networks will say, oh, this, this player is, you know, nine for 15 lifetime against this team. And it's like, well, who cares how he's done in that city? Like, the pitcher he's facing that day is almost certainly not represented in the sample. And, uh, you know, the idea of, of a certain team or a certain city having traits uh, like, you know, Pittsburgh Wolf Bale in the second half, because they always have, is silly, because the team is made up of a bunch of individuals who weren't part of this team before. And, and to think that the 2013 Pirates are doomed because the 2011 Pirates fail in the second half is, uh, you know, basically believing in magic or something. Do we uh, so Neil Huntington, the GM of that team, the Pirates, was hired in uh, September 2007, and yep. now six years later, uh, the team is they they they're at least we could say a true talent 500 team, which is not something they've been for well over 20 years, right? Yeah, or right. Pr- probably have not been that for 20 years. Um, is this how long it takes to turn around a team? I mean, you know, because rarely. Rarely do guys get six years, especially if they're all, you know, 
kind of mediocre seasons. But is this is this realistically how long it takes to turn a team around? No, I think you can do it sooner than that. I mean, I think if you look at like what the, uh, Billy Bean and David Forrest and those guys have done in Oakland, uh, you know, they took a team that wasn't very good a couple of years ago, and now over the last you know year and a half, basically, have the fourth best record in baseball, and they've done it with you know not like developing a ton of prospects that took forever, but signing uh, UNSF this and trading for Jed Lowry and making a bunch of small moves, getting Josh Donaldson for nothing. Uh, you know, they basically rebuilt a pretty good team from scratch in a couple of years with not a lot of uh, minor development and not a lot of farm system help. And there's been some, some young players have stepped up, but it's not like a wave of top prospects that carried the A's to success. Uh, you know, I think realistically it shouldn't take six years to turn around a team. But I think there have been some mistakes along the way. The Pirates have probably admit that. They've, they've made some missteps, but they've also done some good things. And I think we can see in this roster um, that Neil Huntington does have an idea of how to build a competitive baseball team, um, but it shouldn't have taken six years. I think if, if you had a, uh, a good plan in place and, and some better decisions had been made uh, along the way, Pirates probably could have been this two or three years ago. Okay. All right, well, that's it. You've uh, fulfilled your obligation, unless, uh, or I should say to Knockraft, to Fangraft's audio, it's not Knockraft's audio today. Do you, uh, unless, unless you have something to say? Uh, I mean, I, I'm shocked that we're not talking about the draft. It's three days away, and we're just ignoring it. Well, I don't know. I mean, what do you want to say about it? I don't know. It's the draft. It's like a, it's a, it seems like it's a thing we should talk about. Okay. So the big draft is coming up. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want? You've been very enthused about this part of it. I think I've asked you about the draft. I think I remember asking you about the draft last year, and you're like, yep, it is. It's happening. Yeah, yeah, that's a fact. I, I, I remember that as well. Uh, I, I think, like, yeah, I'm not as interested in the draft. Uh, in terms of, like, I'm not Jim Callis or Keith Law or one of these guys who's going to tell you who's going to go where, and I don't have sources telling me who they're drafting at which pick. Uh, I, I think I'm kind of interested in, like, you know, J.D. Sussman published a piece today on uh, whether the draft is necessary. I'm more interested in the higher level, should we have a draft? If we have a draft, is this the best way of having a draft? Like, the mechanics of the competitive balance distribution of players to me is far more interesting than you know, whether this tool, the outfield prospect, is going to go fifth or ninth. Right. Um, yeah, I guess those questions don't occur. You, this is a, something that you should tell me before we start recording. Yeah, no, it's okay. I basically am just busting <laughs> uh, your chops. In this place. Yeah, but yeah, my chops are uh, they're annihilated at this point. Yes, yeah, yes. totally. Uh, you yeah, will have to borrow from Dave Allen, maybe. Yeah, th- yes, it's true. He's got, he's got sizable ones. You'll see his chops soon, I think, in August, I guess. Yes, he's going to be at the uh, Saber Seminar in, yeah. in Boston. I will get to hang out with him again. Okay, yeah. Yeah, well, you can say hi to his chops for me. Don't bust his chops. He's a nice guy. Well, I might borrow some for you. Yeah. Now, uh, yeah, so I, all right, so you did that. I guess, what, Jonathan Gray is going to go first, probably? Mark Capel or the, uh, maybe one of those? Yeah, I don't uh, think anyone knows. I mean, uh, some, you know, there's like four different main mock drafts out there, and they all have someone else. Like, some have Capel, some have Gray, some have Colin Moran. Uh, I don't think anyone really knows what the Astros are going to do. And then there are the two Georgian high school Georgians. Uh, yes. Uh, Clint the redhead and the Toolsy guy. Yeah. Or there's that. That's the same guy. The redhead and the Toolsy guy is the same guy. Well, the redhead is Toolsy, but not as Toolsy as often Meadows, right? Like Meadows is the more Toolsy of the two. I think he's the Toolsy. He's crazy Toolsy, and he has red hair. And the other guy is just like that's, that's Clint Fraser. Yeah. That's all Clint Fraser. And then and then Austin yeah. Meadows is like very just very strong, very strong. Well, I think Meadows is also considered tool Yeah, they're both. Yeah, you have to be to be that highly rated. 
Listen, no, uh, Colin, of, Colin Moran is not tools. Oh, he's not? That's, oh, he's that's not. the knock against Colin Moran. It's, like, it's a good bat, but no one really knows if he can play third or if he's going to do anything besides hit. And, you know, they don't know if he's playing for power. Like, Colin Moran is kind of the anti-scout. Player. Speaking of Toolsy, I spoke with uh, this is still we're still recording. Who cares? Uh, I spoke with Byron Buxton uh, this weekend. Did you? Yeah. I thought you were going to say you know Saras and you were going to call him a tool. No, yeah, he well, yes, he's <laughs> no, the uh, yeah. I spoke with Byron, but he has got a lot of tools. Yeah, um, he's a uh, hammer, screwdriver. Yeah, he does. He's got all of them. Uh, he's also very good with speed. I guess uh, people have been clocking Buxton nearly as fast as they were Billy Hamilton. Um, That's crazy. Yeah, it was because he also could probably, you know, he's going to have like at least modest power, 15, 15, 20 home runs. He's already got seven. Oh yeah, I think Buxton can probably have more power than that, right? Uh, yeah, I think that it's conservative. Yeah, that's the conservative estimate. He has apparently a a a level swing plane. That's what scouts say, Cameron. That's a good thing to have. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, but he's he's got, he's got like a one to one strikeout to walk ratio as a nineteen year old in the Midwest League right now. That's not bad. Uh, yeah, that's not bad, especially considering that was supposed to be, like, his weakness. Right. Um, Speaking of level swing planes, I, I want to uh, throw this out there. I know that people have uh, made comments before about Joey Votto's infield fly numbers and how ridiculous they are, but someone on Twitter sent me this the other day. Uh, Josh Willingham has more infield flies this year than Joey Votto does in his career. Um, well, it's... We, are two months, we are two months into the season. And Josh Willingham has more in two fives in 2013 than Joey Votto has ever hit. Yeah, right. Well, it should t- also tell us that, I mean, Josh Williams, I don't know his numbers precisely right now, but he's he's still a pretty good hitter. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, you can be a good hitter and hit in two fives, or you can be Joey Votto and never hit in two fives. Well, that's interesting, right? Because uh, Votto, I was, obviously his power numbers are decent, but he just, he barrels the ball. He barrels the ball. Yeah, right. His, I think, like, I looked at it the other day, his... Uh, batting average on balls in play over the last, I don't know, two calendar years or something like that is like 420. <laughs> like, it's, it's yeah, uh, off the charts absurd. Like, the next highest guy is like Austin Jackson, like 370 or something. And Austin Jackson is fast. Right. But Joey Votto is not, is not very fast, and he's like got a bad over like 400. Well, we're saying, I mean, generally, the, generally like we, we say generally, right, that uh, 250 to 350 is kind of the span of true talent. Babbitt, but yeah, I mean, maybe it's like 360 might be a little, or 365. I mean, I think like Joe Mauer is up there. I mean, there's you know, Miguel Cabrera is up there. Guys who hit the ball really hard on the line can have a, right. a little over 350 probably. Do you think you could watch a guy take, well, not necessarily batting practice, but at least in-game batting? Like how many games do you think it would take you to see a guy hit and give an estimate of his true talent, Babbitt? Oh, man, a lot. I mean, maybe a professional scout can do it, uh, you know, Faster than I could, but I mean, doesn't. Yeah, all right. Just curious. Yeah. Um, okay, we're done. Uh, thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. Sorry to drag it on past the point at which you wanted to record it. No, I, it's great. I usually I do it for your convenience because I know that you like to do other things. <laughs> you like to do like, every other like thing. <laughs> yeah, sure, like work. This is technically work, I suppose. Technically. All right, let's stop. That is Dave Cameron. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Carson. I'm going to check some more levels on my way out here. Uh, That's Dave Karen. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio.